Former Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien has been receiving praise and inordinate media attention in recent days as asserting Canadian sovereignty in 2003 and announcing that Canada would not support the war in Iraq. Well, this is the commonly held view. Is it accurate? Is it possible Canada did in fact support the war more than most people, including many Canadians, realize? We'll hear a perspective from anti-war activist and researcher Richard Saunders that demonstrates Canada's clear complicity in that war. And, speaking of the Iraq War, on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of that conflict, with claims of weapons of mass destruction and other threats from the Iraqi regime long ago discredited, what has the outcome of the war been? Is the world safer? Are the Iraqi people better off? We'll hear an opinion from an authority on the subject, former UN humanitarian coordinator Hans von Sponick. On today's program, Canada's secret war and Iraq 10 years after shock and awe. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 21st, 2013. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with some of the major stories shaping the national and international political landscape. The Eurozone may be facing a fresh crisis after the Cypriot government voted to reject a bailout deal Tuesday that would have seen 5.8 billion euros shaved off of savers' bank accounts. With the fiscal crisis escalating, banks have been shut since Friday, March 15th, and electronic transactions halted. Britain's RAF has been flying in 1 million euros in low-denomination notes for 3,000 service personnel, with the Minister of Defence explaining it as a contingency measure. Adding to the crisis was speculation that the finance minister, Michael Saris, resigned, but he refuted that by text. Russia has become close to the Mediterranean country after many Russian nationals flooded Cypriot bank accounts to take advantage of high interest rates and lax account vetting. Some reports suggest that the banking arm of the Russian energy company Gazprom may inject capital into Cyprus's second largest bank, Lykee, although Gazprom officials deny this. Former finance minister Mavros Mavrides raised the prospect of the country leaving the Eurozone as possibly the only way to avoid leaving the populace without money. That comes from the UK Guardian. On the first day of his visit to Israel, U.S. President Barack Obama assured Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that United States would act if Syria used chemical weapons or transferred them to terrorist factions and has committed to f- preventing Iran from attaining a nuclear weapon. 
Obama authorized an investigation into claims that Syria had recently used chemical weapons, even though he seemed doubtful of such claims. The American head of state also hopes to convince Israel to start peace talks with Palestinians, which came unraveled in 2010 after the Israeli PM balked at demands of halting the development of new settlements on occupied territories. This visit is Obama's first to America's main strategic ally in the Middle East. Obama was to have met with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah on Thursday. That comes from Reuters. Both the Syrian government and the opposition rebels are calling for the UN to investigate a possible chemical gas attack in the Khan al-Assad region north of Aleppo. At least 25 people died and about 130 were injured when a rocket struck the area Tuesday. A local priest spoke of one of his parishioners, a doctor, treating victims who seemed to have troubled breathing and who seemed to manifest symptoms of a chemical gas attack. A local journalist, Abdullah Mawazini, explained that the strike happened in a region controlled by the government and that a military station has been under siege there for three weeks. He said the biggest concern since the beginning of the crisis was that the government's chemical weapons stockpile could get into the hands of extremist groups. An Israeli official indicated it was, quote, apparently clear, unquote, that chemical weapons had been used but did not specify whether Assad forces or rebels were responsible. Mawazini also said that a video surfaced two months ago featuring a Syrian opposition group which claimed to be conducting experiments with chemical weapons. That comes from RT. On Monday evening, a power outage at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear facility disabled the plant's cooling systems for four spent fuel ponds for reactors 1, 3, and 4. Facility owner TEPCO confirmed the cooling systems resumed operation by Wednesday morning. TEPCO was still investigating the cause of the power failure, but according to spokesman Masayuki Ono, a faulty switchboard could have been to blame. Ono added this was the first time since December 2011 that an electrical failure affected so many facilities. The cooling plants prevent the spent fuel from overheating and contains all the leaked radiation. If power to the cooling ponds had not been restored, the water could have boiled away, exposing the fuel rods to the air and allowing radiation to escape. It was March of 2011 that the plant was crippled by an earthquake and tsunami, causing meltdowns to three of the facility's four reactors. Engineers are expected to have years of work ahead of them, stabilizing the disaster and tackling its effects. That comes from BBC News Asia. Al-Qaeda in Iraq has claimed responsibility for a series of car bombs, roadside explosions, and suicide bombings that swept across Baghdad and other Iraqi cities on the early hours of Tuesday, March 19th, and claimed the lives of about 60 people. These attacks mark the 10th anniversary of the U.S. coalition invasion of the country. Islamic State of Iraq, the country's al-Qaeda wing, has been energized in the wake of the Sunni Muslim rebellion next door in Syria and has carried out high-profile attacks since the start of 2013. Sunni Muslims in Iraq see the Shiite-led al-Maliki government as marginalizing them since the fall of Saddam Hussein and have protested for months west of Baghdad, blocking a highway to Jordan and Syria.
Kurds in the north, meanwhile, have been frustrated by the central government's control over regional oil resources, which they seek to exploit and sell to Turkey. That comes from Reuters. March 19th marks the 10th anniversary of the day the U.S. military and its allies began the offensive against Iraq known as Operation Iraqi Freedom. The military campaign that ensued, coming on top of more than 10 years of sanctions, devastated the country and is estimated to have killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians, as well as thousands of coalition troops, including over 4,000 U.S. troops. Jean Chrétien, Prime Minister at the time of the Iraq War, has received praise for keeping Canada out of the Iraq War. A closer examination, however, reveals that far from withdrawing from that conflict, Canada actively supported it. Ottawa-based Richard Saunders, coordinator of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade, an anti-war group, has outlined in detail the ways in which Canada supported the Iraq War. He joins us now to explain his analysis. So uh, Canada did not uh, become an official member of the Coalition of the Willing, but yet Canada did, uh, according to your research, do quite a lot to support the war in Iraq. Um, Could you uh, maybe sort of uh, list off some of the ways in which uh, Canada was uh, involved in that war? Yeah, for sure, because we were very involved in many different ways. Okay, um, well, one of the ways that we were involved was uh, through our Navy. You know, we often hear that we didn't have that many boots on the ground, um, didn't have that much of an army participation, and that seems to be the one and only uh, criteria by which uh, many people in the mainstream media uh, want to decide whether Canada was involved. How many army people did we have on the ground? Uh, So, but Canadian participation through the Navy was quite significant. We had thousands of people aboard uh, numerous multi-billion dollar frigates and uh, a destroyer that were involved in leading and protecting and supplying the coalition navy uh, in the initial invasion in 2003 as well as many times since over the years we also did have uh, army generals canadian army generals there were three different canadian uh, generals who held um, command positions leading the entire war they were deputy commanders so number two in, in command of the Iraq war. There were three of them, and they each spent a year to a year and a half in Iraq. Um, there was another Canadian general who led, the, uh, who led a, a U.S. Uh, base where they trained thousands of U.S. soldiers and sent them off to war in Iraq. Um, we provided war planners that helped to uh, organize uh, the strategy for the war before the logistics? it started. We helped conduct the air war, so we had Canadian uh, pilots and crew aboard these uh, kinds of aircraft that sort of coordinated the uh, airstrikes. It's like a, a traffic controllers, air traffic controllers, except being, instead of being in a tower, they're in an aircraft, which is especially designed to coordinate all the different fighters and bombers. We provided airspace and refueling for... U.S., uh, thousands of U.S. Um, planes that were going to and from Iraq over over the years 
since the war started. So we, we, ha- we basically let the U.S. fly over our airspace, land in our airports in Newfoundland, two of them, possibly three, and then refuel there and then take off for the rest of the trip. We provided some air transport for, uh, for the war. So we had C-130 aircraft with Canadian pilots flying U.S. troops and their weapons into and out of Iraq. Um, by by um, taking over in Afghanistan, which we did from the U.S., we free, helped free up U.S. troops. We did supply some ground troops, um, uh, three, four, five dozen troops at least. That was that uh, part on of the ground. Yeah. Um, so that's some. Of, those are some of the ways, but there are quite a few other ways. One of the way, another way that I'll just quickly mention is through the Canadian arms trade. We sell. Canada sells five to seven and a half billion dollars worth of military equipment per year, every year. And 75% of that um, goes to the United States. And I, in my research, I found that about 40, at least 40 different major U.S. weapon systems that were used in Iraq, all of the major warplanes, for example, uh, used in Iraq, have very important Canadian components. So these uh, warplanes, these fighters and bombers that conducted the air war and the airstrikes against Iraq, they would not have been able to do their missions if they didn't have the Canadian components in them. And there's quite a few other ways as well that we we helped uh, support by training Iraqi police, training Iraqi troops, uh, providing radar sat data. So we have this this billion-dollar satellite system in the uh, above the earth, and it provides data for targeting of U.S. weapon systems. We, you know, we tr- we um, facilitate U.S. weapons training uh, testing in Canada. So they they test their weapon systems that they use that they used in Iraq. They tested them in Canada. So those are some of the ways that um, that Canada was involved, and I think that pretty much proves that Canada was involved. I mean, it's really hard to deny it. I mean, there's so many different ways that we were involved. It's incredible that they can say that Canada was not involved or Canada mm. sat out the war or isn't it great? And we're, we're asked to celebrate how Canada didn't get involved. Well, we did get involved. We were very involved. And it, I find it really incredibly uh, just mind-blowing that they can pretend. They can put up this phony uh, official narrative that says that we weren't involved when we were so deeply involved. Yeah, Very few other countries were as involved as Canada. I mean, obviously, the United States and Britain were more involved than we were. Mm. Australia had quite a few troops there, but they didn't provide all these other things that Canada provided. Well, if you included what, like, all the various ways in which Canada did help, I mean, where do, would we rank, uh, you know, among the, the so-called Coalition of the Willing, or did we actually contribute more than some of the people who were listed as part of the Coalition of the Willing? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We provided more than almost everyone in the whole world. I mean, other than the United States, Britain, and Australia, Canada pr- provided, I think, uh, a very good case could be made that Canada provided more than any other country in the world other than those three. So we, I'd say we were at least in the top five. Mm. Now, it's interesting, this, the, the whole issue of the Coalition of the Willing, because when that was announced on March 18th, 2003, Secretary of State Colin Powell uh, said, we now have a Coalition of the Willing who have publicly said they could be included in such a listing. 
And then he said, quote, there are 15 other nations who, for one reason or another, do not wish to be publicly named, but will be supporting the coalition, unquote. So in other words, there, the, pub, the um, coalition of the willing is just a list of the countries that were participating in one way or another and were willing to publicly say that they were involved. And then he says very clearly there's 15 other countries who don't want to be publicly named, but they were supporting the coalition. So Canada is obviously in that group. They did not want to be publicly named as part of the coalition of the willing. So they were unwilling to be named as part of the coalition of the willing, but they were very willing to be involved. Hmm. Now, you mentioned a, a, a lot of various ways in which Canada was involved. Um, you, you did mention a, a few dozen people who, uh, like boots on the ground, there were actually Canadian soldiers there in Iraq yep. uh, in, a, in a combat capacity. Uh, how, how was that possible when the, the official line was that we aren't selling, sending soldiers to Iraq? Okay, that's done through... Um having these soldiers working under the command of British or, uh, or American uh, forces. So they're, they're kind of on it. It's called an exchange. So they're on exchange. It's the same way that we had pilots flying U.S. warplanes during the war, um, flying, for example, these, these massive transport planes that drop uh, tanks that carry tanks in there. They're C-17s. They're called Globemasters. And we had Canadian pilots that were flying during the Iraq war, uh, part of the Iraq war, flying vast amounts of, of war materiel, weapon systems, including huge tanks, flying them right into battle zones. So they were Canadians flying U.S. warplanes. And that, that they do that by being on exchange. They're on exchange missions. So they were act and, and another thing is that these Canadian generals that were leading um, international forces of, of ground troops, they were on the ground. They were uh, they weren't you know a general does not is not a, the guy that's back kicking doors in and running in and, and kidnapping people and shooting people. Um, but he's overseeing. We had three Canadian generals that took turns overseeing that. Uh, they had their boots on the ground. They were in Iraq. So that's an, another way that we had Canadian boots on the ground, army guys. They were actual generals. And these generals, I mean, like, how, how, how many people would you say were they, did they have oversight over? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I can't remember now. It's been a few years since I uh, researched it. But many thousands. Uh, yeah. Let me see if I can very quickly find that. And, I mean, these guys um, received... Um, medals for their for their um, for what they did. I believe um, that one of those generals became uh, the uh, the head the chief of, the, of defense staff, yeah. Walt Matinchik. Yeah. He led thirty five thousand U.S. troops in Iraq in two thousand and four. He was there for over a year. Well, for from sorry about a year. So January two thousand and four to January two thousand and five, uh, and he was given a medal by the go Canadian Governor General. Michel Jean, uh, saying, uh, I can quote to you from what it said, the, the, the text that's associated with the medal, it says, Major General Natinchik led the Corps' the Corps's 10 separate brigades, consisting of more than 35,000 soldiers stationed throughout Iraq theater of operations, 
He also oversaw planning and execution of all core-level command support and combat service support operations. His pivotal role in the development of numerous plans and operations resulted in a tremendous contribution by the multinational corps to Operation Iraqi Freedom, that's what they called the Iraq War, and has brought great credit to the Canadian forces and to Canada. So this is a, a, a medal that he received for his leading role, commanding more than 35,000 troops in Iraq. And then they have the gall to say that Canada wasn't involved in the war. I mean, it's just, it's ludicrous. Yeah, if you saw... We're, 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 suppo- you know, we're supposed to celebrate that Canada wasn't involved? All we're doing is celebrating that we've been deceived, that they've done a PR job, that there's been an incredible success in their propaganda, and that they've been able to successfully pull the wool over our, our, over our eyes and dis- deceive us and trick us in a, in a psychological operation. Are we supposed to celebrate that? That's incredible. Richard Saunders, I noticed that many of the ways in which Canada was, as you say, like supported the war, it was in terms of things like components and uh, all these sort of uh, you know, connections that like, seem to go right to the guts of the military. I'm wondering if it's, if it's even possible for Canada to stay out of any U.S. Uh, conflict, given the level of uh, the, the tentacles between the Canadian and uh, uh, right. United States uh, military-industrial complex. Right. Well, in that one of one of the examples I mentioned was the the Canadian military exports with the the five billion a year or whatever to the U.S. That would be really hard to. I mean, obviously, we are so thoroughly integrated into the U.S. war machine that I mean, Canada, Canadian parts are right in there in all these major weapon systems. So if they call the war tomorrow. All of our, uh, all of that stuff, that Canadian-made stuff, and these companies have received billions of dollars from the Canadian government to support their export industries. Um, yeah, you, I mean, what could we do? We could we say, oh, we don't want you to fly those planes because they have all that weapons, uh, that equipment in it? No, we couldn't. We couldn't withdraw our support from that. Um, it's 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 too late for that. Uh, so whatever war they happen to be fighting. Canada is playing its part. But there are other things, many of the other examples, uh, training Iraqi police, training Iraqi troops. Um, we set up the phony elections. Uh, elections Canada, you know, was a major player in setting up phony uh, democratic, uh, so-called democratic elections in Iraq. Uh, providing radar sat data, you know, um, uh, sending in these uh, exchange troops, they could be withdrawn. Sending in the generals, we didn't have to do that. Having our, our uh, uh, ships in the in the Persian Gulf, we didn't have to do that. Uh, we even had a Canadian uh, commodore who was leading the entire multinational fleet of warships that were uh, escorting the U.S. Uh, warships into place for the initial uh, bombardment of Iraq. I mean, we didn't have to do that. We could have we could have called those we could have stopped all those things. Yeah, you can't stop the uh, once you've sold them the equipment. Uh, you they, you can't stop them from using it. But I mean, it could have stopped. They, I mean, if let's say we found out that Canadian companies were selling weapons to uh, oh Syria, you don't think that they could stop it? Of course they could. But we're so you're right. We are so thoroughly integrated into the U.S. war machine. It's it is very difficult to pull out. 
So why is this meme so pervasive, this idea that, that Canada said no to the war in Iraq? Why is it that people continue to believe this uh, in spite of uh, all the documentation that you've put forward? Well, all the research that I do and other people do don't mean anything compared to the mainstream media, right? I, I mean, I've got very little uh, help from the mainstream media. I, uh, the, the corporate media, and, and also the... Uh, it fits into a huge mythology that we have, that we've had for decades, this whole myth of Canada, the great force for peace in the world. Um, so it, it fits so nicely into that mythology, that it was easy to to sell this particular spin on that mythology because it fit in so nicely. So people just go, yeah, that's right, of course, because Canada's not a, a, a war fighter, you know, we're a peace-loving uh, country, blah, blah, blah. So it's easy to it's easy for the media to, to lie to us. Um, the NDP was not much help. They were basically went along with the mythology. You know, they did do some uh, work to expose some of the ways that Canada was involved. But generally, when the government said, okay, so we've decided not to be involved, even though they were, they would, you know, they, they said, okay, we're not involved. Uh, then the NDP was bending over backwards to congratulate itself for having um, pressured the government to not be involved in the war. So then they got, they, they, uh, they got credit uh, they got support from their membership. But, you know, Richard, it seems to me even so-called progressive forces who are even instinctively uh, suspicious of the mainstream media, they, they seem to, to buy into that message as well, don't you find? Uh, many do. Um, many people don't, just haven't seen all the evidence. Uh, when, when you see it, it's really hard to, to uh, ignore it. It's hard to uh, not realize that we were involved when you see the list of all the things that we did. But somehow um, there are peace activists. I think there's an overlap with people who are big supporters of the International Criminal Court, big supporters of this so-called responsibility to protect this, this new doctrine that the U.S. and NATO countries use as a pretext for going to war, you know, it used to be called humanitarian intervention. And uh, there's, so there's an overlap between these different mythologies or these different um, doctrines that are used to, uh, to put a nice facade on war and participation in war. And so you have people in the peace movement who, who are willing to go along with these, these uh, pretenses. Um, you'd have to ask them how they managed to wrap their minds around these things, because it seems to me that the cognitive dissonance that would it would that these contradictions would create in your mind would be so strong that you wouldn't be able to keep the, uh, such completely opposite ideas going in your mind at the same time. You know, how can you believe um, that Canada wasn't involved, and yet at the same time? know that we did this and this and this and this and this and this to help the war. I mean, they're so completely contradictory that it would, you would think it would cause some kind of discomfort in your, in your mind that you wouldn't be able to continue
continue to believe those things, but somehow they managed to, or the whole responsibility protecting, how can they believe that the United States can lead a war to, uh, to protect human rights? I mean, don't they know anything about the long history of, of U.S. wars? So you'd have to ask, it would be good for you to interview some people that, uh, and question them about that. How, how, do they, uh, how do they support these, these ideas like the responsibility to protect and um, the idea that Canada is a great, wonderful, peacekeeping, peacekeeping. country when it, when it is engaged in wars to the extent that it is. Okay. Well, Richard Saunders, uh, I want to thank you very much for, uh, I guess, shedding some light there on why... Uh, on the reality of Canada's involvement uh, in Iraq. And uh, I guess if people want more information about your uh, publication or uh, your website, uh, where would you direct them? Uh, if you do a search for Coalition to Oppose the Arms Trade, then you'll, you'll find our website, the Coat website, and uh, there's lots of detailed information there with references and uh, footnotes and whatnot to... to uh, prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that Canada was very, very deeply involved in the Iraq war, not only during the initial invasion, but uh, over the many years since. Okay. Richard Saunders has been uh, involved with the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade and uh, publishes Press for Conversion magazine. Thank you very much for joining us, Richard. Oh, thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across the country. We're also podcast at globalresearch.ca. You can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. It has been 10 years since the U.S. and its coalition partners launched a military offensive against the people of Iraq. The war resulted in the deaths of over 100,000 documented civilian deaths, according to Iraq Body Count, and much of the civilian infrastructure of the country has been devastated by the war. Now that Saddam Hussein has been removed from power and executed, and a new supposedly democratic government put in place, how are the Iraqi people faring? What are the current conditions? And what does the future hold? Hans von Spanik was the UN humanitarian coordinator for Iraq from 1998 to 2000 when he left in protest. He has an extensive understanding of Iraq's social infrastructure during the lead-up to the 2003 war and beyond, and uh, has been following the country's humanitarian situation since. He joins us from Germany, and uh, he's recently authored an article, Iraq and the Betrayal of a People, Impunity Forever. So, uh, Hans von Spanik, thank you very much for joining us on the Global Research News Hour. Well, I'm glad uh, to do that. You became humanitarian coordinator during the, uh, the period of the sanctions, uh, toward just a, a few years before the official start of the war. Uh, could you give us a bit of a read on uh, just what the humanitarian situation was, uh, you know, before the 1991 war and then during your time in Iraq in the 98 to 2000 period? Well, of course, uh, we can recall that before the 6th of August, when uh, 
sanctioned 1990. Sanctions were pronounced on Iraq. Uh, Iraqi people, if they had a, a food problem, for example, it was one of obesity. They had ample food. It was a well-to-do nation. Uh, despite low oil prices, uh, they still had their coffers full with foreign exchange. They had a uh, state-of-the-art medical system. They had among the best schools in the Middle East. They gave away many scholarships to non-Iraqis, uh, for uh, young people from other Arab nations. So it was, uh, by all counts, a, uh, a country that was on the move. Uh, even though it was headed by a dictator, but the dictator headed a secular uh, country, a secular government, and um, gave ample space for development, uh, gave uh, good opportunities for, for women to participate in nation building. So despite all the negative aspects of a dictatorship, uh, a brutal dictatorship at times, um, the country was in a fairly uh, decent state. And then came uh, the uh, big mistake uh, to move uh, into Kuwait, a mistake made by uh, Saddam Hussein, but uh, carefully prodded, if you want, details, uh, we cannot have time for details, but prodded by the outside, particularly the United States, uh, to uh, enter into, uh, into uh, well, finding arrangements with the neighbor Kuwait um, at, at the terms of, of, of Iraq. And uh, we know what happened from then onwards. Um, the sanctions very quickly had a very strong grip on the Iraqi people, the caloric surplus that existed before sanctions very quickly became a, a very inadequate caloric um, intake by the people. Hunger developed, poverty uh, was all pervasive, uh, and and this is often forgotten. Uh, for the first five years of uh, uh, sanctions in Iraq, uh, the people of that country were totally dependent on handouts from voluntary contributions outside. There was no oil for food program. There was no humanitarian program financed by the United Nations. So um, it, it was a very, very difficult um, period for the Iraqis uh, that accelerated um, the, um, the, the negative developments uh, in the in the lives of the normal and innocent uh, Iraqi uh, population, and then in 1995, after I would call it a ping pong diplomacy uh, between the Security Council and uh, Saddam Hussein's government, um, for various reasons, uh, mainly because the government in Baghdad didn't want to have to um, subject itself to uh, not only under force Operation Desert Storm 1991 to leave Kuwait, but also to suddenly goalpost changes that became apparent. Uh, 
that were introduced by the Security Council to uh, uh, pay compensation, uh, to be involved in disarmament, uh, and also to account for missing Kuwaitis. These were the three reasons, and the government didn't want to accept that. Uh, so the victim, as so often in crises, um, were the people of Iraq. Uh, but after five years, it finally... Um, was decided to agree on an oil for food program, a so-called humanitarian exemption. Uh, again, what is often not known in the public is that this so-called humanitarian exemption was entirely, entirely financed by the Iraqi themselves from the limited sale of oil that they were allowed to carry out under, uh, under the sanction regime. Uh, and this um, was helpful. It is one cannot argue and say the uh, oil for food program didn't help, but it was an inadequate help. Dictator Saddam Hussein could do within Iraq what he wanted under sanctions. So you're saying that uh, what you're painting a picture here is that the effect of the sanctions was to to weaken the people's ap ability to resist Saddam Hussein, even if you acknowledge the the need to somehow uh, replace him. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the 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 formula didn't work. Yeah. Uh, the formula that was primarily introduced by the what we call the P2 group, the two permanent members, the Security Council out of the five, the U.S. and the U.K., who had this idea that they could, um, that they could through this kind of economic pressure, uh, bring about uh, political, political change. Uh, but as we now know, it wasn't at all so clear, certainly not when I served in Baghdad, but now it is totally clear. Uh, the, the, the oil for food program, the humanitarian exemption, uh, wasn't meant to work. It, 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 it awaited everything had to do with the fact that it was decided in Washington and in London. I think it's fair to say that, that um, nothing would change until Saddam Hussein and his government had disappeared. Okay. Um, so you have uh, milestones that support this. Uh, this contention. Uh, you, you have the goalpost changes in Security Council resolutions that made it more and more difficult uh, for, uh, for the Iraqis to meet international expectations. You had uh, the October 1998 Iraq Liberation Act, which uh, f for once made it very clear what the official policy was it was about regime change. Uh, and then you had, uh, in, as of 1996, uh, you had this uh, inadequate um, oil for food program, which uh, was kept alive as an in inadequate instrument, uh, and it was linked. That is important to also uh, point out. It was linked. Uh, economic sanctions were linked to uh, disarmament, uh, and that was a very convenient way for um, the policymakers in the Security Council to ensure uh, that things would not change until Saddam Hussein was gone. Okay, so 
in 2003, we did see the uh, the launching of the, the shock and awe campaign, Operation Iraqi Freedom. So coming on top of this weakening of the uh, Iraqi people, uh, what, what kind of an impact did that end up having? What were the main social indicators that... Uh, well, you, you see, again, uh, very often um, the media and the public want to look at Iraq with a cut-off point of 19 March 2003 when this uh, invasion, this illegal invasion began. But one has to remember how the Iraqi people entered into this post-Saddam, post-sanction period. The national immune system was already totally weakened. There was a physical infrastructure that was broken. There was an education system that was in bad shape. Uh, there was a health system that was in worse shape. In the days when I served in Baghdad, it is an unbelievable statistic that I give you now, but it is a correct one. There was one single X-ray machine operating in the uh, areas under the control of the government in Baghdad. Uh, it, unbelievable. One single X-ray machine that was fully functioning. So. When the 19th of March came, um, the people of Iraq entered this new phase in a very, very weak mental and physical state. And the hope, of course, was uh, that things uh, after uh, the occupation had settled down and there were beginnings of a new political process with an Iraqi government to be formed, first an interim government, then an elected government, um, would be much better. But as it turned out, it wasn't any better. And yesterday, only yesterday, um, there was a BBC report from uh, one of their reporters in Baghdad who concluded by interviewing uh, Iraqi residents of Baghdad about their life. And they would, with one exception, they all were making the point that even during these inadequate days of sanctions, their lives were uh, were better. Uh, sanitation facilities were terrible in my days, but they are terrible today. Electricity supply was not good. Today, it still is not good. Oil revenue, uh, the amount of oil that Iraq is today um, managing to, uh, uh, to export is not much different from the days when, uh, when sanctions prevailed. It's about 2.2-2.3 million barrels per day. Um, and added to all this, uh, after, the, uh, um, after the end of the sanctions uh, and the beginning of the occupation, a new factor arose which isn't a typical part of a dictatorship, and that is the security factor. Suddenly, you, uh, you, you had a very insecure environment in Iraq, which prevails today. The carnage continues. Um, no one can predict the next day and the security of the next day. The housewife that goes to shop or the man who takes the, the taxi to, to work, they have no idea where the next bomb is exploding. Mm. So the security factor is an additional element of misery for the for the um, Iraqi people. And the Iraqi people are waiting desperately 
for stability, and that stability hasn't come. Uh, also, the relationship between uh, the Arab side, uh, the, the 15 governorates uh, that are in, in the Arab area and the three governorates that are in Iraqi Kurdistan, um, the relationship between the Kurdish leadership in the north and, uh, and the Maliki government are not good. And the end product is that you have um, a, a social and economic reality today, which is devastatingly bad. You're citing the the uh, the, this, the growth in, in sectarianism. That uh, I mean, was there some sense in which Saddam Hussein, uh, as tyrannical as he may have been, did was able to somehow keep a lid on those uh, varying factions? He, he certainly. Uh, let's keep in mind, Iraq was a secular, not an Islamic republic. Uh, and he did keep. That doesn't mean that uh, during the days of Saddam Hussein that there were not a lot of uh, problems, not not very transparent, but there were Shia Sunni problems. But there was a lid, as you say, there, there was a lid on this issue. Uh, and it was mainly a problem between the clergy uh, in, in Karbala and Najaf and in Baghdad, uh, the Shia clergy I'm talking about, and uh, the government. But the rest, the Shia Sunni idea wasn't an issue uh, during my days. And today it is a very fundamental problem of uh, intercommunal relations. So um, this certainly uh, is one of the major uh, pro new problems that have arisen. And it permeates uh, every aspect of life, including uh, education. Um, you, I, I just heard um, a week ago that now uh, there is an attempt to replace um, the, uh, the teaching of art and sports uh, by religion in many schools. Um, the freedom to dress as you wish is, is not there. Um, if you are a Sunni student and you have a Shia professor, um, then it's a much more complicated relationship than if you are a Sunni with a Sunni teacher or a Shia with a Shia teacher. It has gone down to, to this level which was unheard of uh, during the years since 58, since uh, Abdul Karim Qasim uh, um, through a coup ended the uh, the monarchy in in in, in Iraq. So um, no one, wherever he or she stands on the uh, political um, level, can argue that things today uh, are better in Iraq than they were uh, during these difficult days of of, of sanctions. And what about uh, you? You've, it's been. Uh expressed concern about the depleted uranium and white phosphorus uh, being used? Well, this is, these are, of course, um, again, uh, issues like that are extremely important to consider. Uh, they are also very vulnerable to misuse and misinterpretation. And uh, it, uh, However, the sheer physical evidence of uh, something that has gone wrong here because of the use of depleted uranium and the use of uh, white phosphorus. Example, Fallujah. We have enough epidemiological evidence to show uh, what is happening there. 
uh, how many uh, deformed uh, children are born, how many uh, cases of leukemia and, and cancer uh, are becoming known. It's a continuation. I have myself seen uh, also after I left Iraq as an official, uh, I traveled many times back to Iraq and I did go to places like the child and mother uh, hospital in Basra. Uh, what you saw there, I had absolutely no idea was uh, physically possible. What you could see in terms of deformed uh, young uh, babies and and, 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 and and children. Immense. And the cause of that, well, there is a, uh, an, a scientific debate. Is this radiation? Is it depleted uranium? Whatever it is, it didn't exist before. And now it does exist. And we have the physical evidence. Uh, so it is, an un, it is an area of great concern to the world, world Health Organization that has, I must add here, been again and again under pressure not to go too deeply into the subject uh, for the obvious reason that it would be an embarrassment to some governments who have used this mm-hmm. uh, kind of uh, munition. Um, so it's an important aspect in understanding uh, the overall uh, current situation in the country. It does seem uh, clear that uh, you you feel that uh, the United States and the United Kingdom should be held accountable for their uh, for crimes against the peace and and violations of the Geneva Conventions, uh, among other uh, breaches of international law. Um, Are are there any other uh, uh, entities that you feel need to be held to account uh, for this uh, disaster that's uh, taken place? Well, you you know, I mean, you have a a large number of people who had something to do in creating these conditions in contravention to United Nations Charter Law, to the Geneva Convention, to the Hague Convention, to all the, 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 the international law that was meant to prevent what we now see has happened. So the, um, the number of people that should really be held accountable is very large. But you have to start somewhere. And uh, as difficult as it is, uh, I, as, an, as, a, as a former official, uh, I am I'm not very pleased when I am accused of, you know, uh, being a hateful activist when I raise these issues about um, accountability. But I will, until we get to the point where we can say law, as every normal human being would concede, law is and justice is for everybody, not just for the losers, also for those who, who have won a military victory. Um, they are as accountable as the others. And that motivates not just me, but many others, my friend and colleague, Dennis Halliday. You mentioned Professor Boyle. Uh, there are many others uh, who simply want to insist that people who had something to do in, a, in, a, in senior positions cannot walk away freely. Uh, and this is why uh, some of us, uh, Dennis Halliday and I, are both members of the Kuala Lumpur War Crimes Commission. Uh, since 2005, we have tried very hard to get uh, the evidence uh, of violation uh, 
put into uh, in uh, on paper. Uh, we have we have interviewed witnesses from uh, Abu Ghraib, from Bagram in Afghanistan, from Guantanamo, all victims of uh, violation of international law. Uh, and uh, we are now we have in possession now two very valuable volumes of evidence. Uh, of these uh, courts uh, in Kuala Lumpur that are courts of conscience. They are not normal national legal entities. So the, the, the effort now, we are now at a stage where uh, we are trying to find, with the help of eminent international lawyers, I do not want to identify them at this stage, but we have people who are eminently qualified to carry this forward, uh, from a Malaysian court of conscience to a national court, uh, a normal legal court, and eventually, I hope, uh, that the International Criminal Court uh, will change its attitude towards the submission we have made in which uh, Dr. Mahatya, the former Prime Minister of Malaysia, uh, has argued that the ICC should adopt uh, these cases in order to bring justice uh, to the perpetrators of the situation in in, in, in Iraq, uh, you you are also somewhat familiar with the the uh, the way the the Libyan operation carried out, and it does seem as if there are certain uh, parallels there with Iraq uh, in the sense that you do have a, a leader that could uh, uh, be condemned for his own uh, conduct toward his own people, but at the same time. You know, you you end up with a, a humanitarian uh, disaster and a breach of international law. Uh, I mean, the the Kuala war crimes. Nope. Yeah, yeah. Not notwithstanding, uh, is there any sense that there, there that a lessons are going to be learned as a result of this process that we could prevent other countries uh, from being overthrown? Well, you know, at at the moment, uh, it's. Uh, there is an unwillingness in official quarters to learn lessons. And it's the public, it's the, 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 the civilian conscience that reminds the officials that something needs to be done. Um, the Libyan case is, uh, in, in many ways, is uh, quite comparable to, uh, to Iraq. If for no other reason, then, you know, there were the days when the same dictator in Baghdad um, was a friend of the very powers that later on tried to topple him. Uh, the same in in, uh, in Tripoli. Uh, I mean, the uh, the, the um, Libyan Gaddafi um, was in the good books of many because it was it paid off. It was good business. So you overlooked all that which you should never have overlooked, and then ultimately you decided uh, to to topple that one that leader too. It's tragic, it's to me tragic, that this R2P concept, which was, again, a Canadian, by the way, a Canadian initiative. You, you may remember, 2001, August, it was the Canadian government that, in, that introduced this international commission to look at uh, responsibility to protect uh, issues. And uh, what was created then by the UN in the Global Summit in 2005 uh, as a follow-on to the Canadian initiative, um, was something very valuable. But it made one big assumption. And the assumption was that it would be applied 
in a transparent and honest way. Well, in Libya, it wasn't. In Libya, the, the, uh, the, the um, impression was it was applied, and the mandate given to the NATO was to apply this concept to protect people, to protect innocent civilians. But it didn't take long before even, in, even the, the, the French, the British, uh, and the Americans and some others didn't shy away from admitting it wasn't about that really. It was about regime change. So when you have this kind of um, uh, use of valuable, theoretically valuable um, concepts like the R2P uh, applied in a, with a very different motive, then don't be surprised if there are others uh, who are not willing uh, to, to follow you because they don't trust you. And uh, this R2P concept could, could have, had it been applied uh, honestly in the case of Libya, could have been a useful concept to apply in, in Syria. But as you have seen, there's a complete stalemate in the Security Council. The Russians and the Chinese maybe also for some self-interest, but they, they certainly have a convincing argument when they say, no, we don't want this because we don't trust that this is really uh, the way uh, you want to handle it. You have other reasons why you want this. So we have, at the moment, um, a very, very poor preparedness by the United Nations to handle uh, and play a constructive role in diffusing international crises. Well, Hans von Spanik, I wanted to, to thank you very much for that rather comprehensive uh, overview of the, uh, of the Iraq situation, uh, especially 10 years after the war, and uh, uh, as well as uh, following the, the sanctions that uh, worsened things so much. So thank you very much for uh, joining us on the Global Research News Hour. Well, I wish I could say it was a pleasure. I think it was more a responsibility to make my contribution. Uh, to what I perceive to be the, 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 the actual conditions. Okay. Hans von Spanik was the UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Iraq from 1998 to 2000, and he has uh, written a recent article, Iraq and the Betrayal of a People, Impunity Forever. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.